0: Hello and welcome back to the dungeon. I'm Matt, and unfortunately today we do not have Renee with us because she is sick. Uh, we were going to record this a little earlier, but I was also sick before this, and our daughter got us sick. Uh, don't worry, it's not COVID. We checked. Uh, it's just a run of the mill sore throat and you know cough that kind of thing. Not very good for podcasting. So, so you guys just have to listen to me, I guess, for a little bit. Talk. I should have had one of the other guests that I had on co-host with me, but. That was earlier in the week, and unfortunately I didn't think it very far enough ahead. So what is this show going to be about? Well, we've got the Anvil of Souls, we've got games played for this week, which are actually kind of few and far between because I worked worked at the county fair for High Tide for a couple of days, and that really wiped me out, and then afterwards I was sick because that's what happens when you work at a fair. I'd like to talk a little bit about the airbrush because I had a guy ask me a question. You know, how do you how do I get into airbrushing? What do I... What do you think I should get? What should I do? And I thought to myself, well, this would be a pretty good topic to just sort of talk about by myself. And Renee, we were going to talk about corn, the army, the strengths, the weaknesses, how to play with it, how to play against it. But I think we might wait until next podcast to talk about that. That way, Renee is actually on. So then I've got an interview with Alan and Mike about their narratives. And then I've got a narrative reading called Prisoners of the Gods. And then uh, for question debate time... I answered this question myself last night. What do you do about Gotrick? That's gonna be our question for today. How do you how do you play with him? How do you play against him? Hope you guys enjoy the episode. I'll see you in the next segment. So what have I done for hobby and paint this time around in the Anvil of Souls? Unfortunately, not as much as I had hoped. I had some very lofty goals last time. I did get my battle wagon done. I got it all painted up, and it looks pretty cool. I kind of did a multicolor approach and put a couple of Space Marine decals on it just to make it look like they had scavenged from different Space Marine vehicles, and that was really fun. I, I got that from Cromlech, although I have a couple of actual GW battle wagons. I, I think this one looked really nice. Kind of reminds me of a Panzer tank almost. I did rebase my 30 boys. Uh, on 32s. And I kind of touched them up a little bit and got them all situated. They had their kind of, they had their inaugural battle, which I'll talk about later on. And I also have started painting my Squigoth. Now this unit is really cool. I like it. It's not super overpowered, but it's also no joke. You really definitely have to commit to killing it. I feel like with a bunch of wounds, toughness eight, it's got a decent profile too. It is a really cool unit, but I'm only about halfway done painting it. I've got all the base coats. I've got the flesh on. I've got the top part, the like howled up part, all painted up. I just have to apply a wash now and then do a little decal work. And I want to kind of rough it up, you know, like get some mud in there, a little bit of blood. I think it'll look really cool. So what do I have to paint up though uh, for next time? Well, I did just get in my, uh, my Orc War Boss on Squigasaur, and I really want to get that painted up. He's been doing so well for me in every single game, and I've had to use a proxy for him. So I feel like he really does deserve his own sort of good paint job. I really want to get that put together and painted up. And I also got a kill rig because they look really cool. They're really good too. So I'll be putting that together, and I may or may not be able to paint that up before the next time around because it's a really big model, but I'm interested in doing it, I can't wait. I think that'll look really cool. And I still have to put together my Gorkonaut and paint it. So those are my three real hobby goals. As far as AOS goes, hmm, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pick a corn unit, a unit of corn in, in the army, and I'm going to finish it. Most of the corn units are tabletop standard, but they're not finished. You know what I mean? So I'm going to take a unit and I'm going to finish them. And that's that's my hobby goal for AOS next time. As far as the hobby tool segment, I, I feel like this time I'm gonna talk about liquid gold, or that's what I call it. It's airbrush flow improver. I used to think, hey, you could use just water in your airbrush and I went through that whole thing. And if you do, it's fine, but man, do I love airbrush flow flow improver because it really does a good job at improving the viscosity of your paint, but without and and it considerably increases drying time so if you're trying to either wet blend or if you just want to try to get your paint onto a a surface it really helps for that a little bit better than water in my opinion I, I pretty much use it for everything I use it in my airbrush I use it in my wet palette I use it when everything except for dry brushing obviously I even use it when I'm uh when I'm shading things when I'm using shade because I feel like as if you if you have add a little bit of airbrush flow improver to your shade, you kind of don't get that your shade doesn't build up on the model. I feel like it, it flows into the cracks a lot easier, and so you don't get that weird dark shade look on you know smooth flat surfaces like you normally would. So I really like that. Uh, I love it, and I'll talk a lot about it when I talk about the airbrush. That is it for the hobby tool segment. I, it also only runs about maybe $8 on Amazon or in your friendly local gaming store. Check that first. I always do high tech games has it sometimes. And when they do, I buy it and I try to not use it in the big bottle. I, I get like a little dropper bottle. It's just easier to control then. that the way I know how many drops I put in like a nor if I'm using my wet palette, I'll put one to two drops for each globule of paint. And I know that's not exactly scientific, but that's, You know, I have one paintbrush that I use to get paint out of GW pots and I use a globule paint, put it on there and then put one or two drops. Turn on if it's like a base coat. If it's a base coat, I put two drops. If it's a a layer or something or something that's real thin already, I'll only put one drop in and just kind of mix it in. And I find that it works really well. Going into games played, actually two games this week or rather these last two weeks, one with my new 40k orcs versus Harlequins. And man, that was actually a really tough game. This Harlequins, they still pack a big punch. Guy had a lot of Melta and he used that like Melta pistols. And he used that to really destroy a lot of my transports and things like that. And then he had, um, he had the strength five, were they? The kisses, uh, no, the caresses. And they did a lot to or at orcs 2, who or, are, you know, now it's T five. My orcs did eventually pull off the win on it. And I wanna say it was it was kind of weird because we all I had to set up my whole army. And then he set up his whole army. And then he went, he automatically went first. I didn't there was no roll-off. He moved forward and just kind of destroyed all my transports and all my guys got out and he charged in. And I kinda let him kill off half of an orc squad of twenty. And then I murdered all of his bikes in response because orcs in combat are generally terrifying. I also interrupted. Before that, I interrupted and killed off one of his Harlequin squads. And then after that, it was just about training squads because if his if he charged in his Harlequins, then he, he would just murder or blend a unit. But if I was able to get the charge off on one of his units, I would just murder and blend that unit. Those bomb squigs are actually really good for getting a couple of extra wounds off on the transports because they only have a couple... I have a couple wounds to begin with, so a couple two pluses, D three mortals. It's looking pretty good. In the end, it was down to my my war boss on Squigasaur charging into his uh, troop master. That's what it's called. I got a couple mortal wounds off on him, and that was it. Just mortal wounded him out with Headwampus, Kilchompa, and the Squig. And then after that, it was like, okay, well the game's over now because <laughs> all he had is was all he had left was a Death Jester that really couldn't hurt it, and a Shadow Seer that was going to die next turn. So that was that game. And then yesterday I had a game with my corn versus Cities of Sigmar. And the guy had a go trick. It was 1500 points. He had go trick and a couple of, um, a couple of units of cities and then a couple of stormcast units. And I, I feel like the gyrocopters and gyro bomber didn't do well for him. I feel like that would have been much better off. He would have been much better off having an additional 20 dwarfs or having an another unit or two a stormcast if he if he could but the stormcast chariot was really good for him they really tore some stuff up even though it didn't get the charge it still tore up my um my corn warriors and corn warriors i think they they ended up over two rounds of combat or three rounds of combat doing three wounds to the thing i'd say use that chariot and it was it was okay though i did eventually kill gotrick because that was my one thing that i wanted to do for the game i killed gotrick i'll kind of talk about how i did that later on because the, the question and answer for this segment is going to be how do you how do you kill Go Trick essentially or how do you deal with Go Trick and then if you're playing him how do you best use Go Trick that was a good game i ended up pulling out the win because eventually i did kill go trick and i after a little bit he just had a couple of heroes left and we were like okay great good game and actually what was really cool about it was he didn't lose any of his Any of the guys that died, because you you roll on a two plus and if you roll ones, they die. Well, none of his guys died. And I thought maybe it was just because Korn Korn was so excited and happy about the blender that he created in the middle with GoTrek that he was like, I don't care. You can get all those other guys off the field. Who cares? We just are interested in this blender over here. Those were our games played for this week or rather these last two weeks. I will have a lot more games played, I think, in the next two weeks because I was just really busy these two weeks. hope to have at least four more games these, these next two weeks. All right, well, next up is me talking a lot about airbrushing, so please stay tuned, and I'll be right back. And I'm back, sort of talking about airbrushing. Now, first, I got my first airbrush in 2013, and I have ever since been very fond of using it. Actually, in the beginning, I was a little bit put off because I had to deal with a whole lot of different things with the airbrush, like clogs and, you know, crappy airbrushes, that sort of normal phase that you go through before you become comfortable with something. Here's what I, I would say this is more like a lessons learned than a tutorial because you guys are just going to be able to learn from all of my mistakes. First thing I would definitely say is you could buy a cheap airbrush but I wouldn't suggest it. And by that, I mean, I wouldn't suggest buying like a master's airbrush or the like three pack of master's airbrushes that are on like Amazon for, I don't know, like 50 bucks or something like that. Those things, I started with that and it didn't work for me because they were, they were really shoddily made. And what you find is that when you have shoddily made equipment like airbrushes, then they just don't work right. They, They either they break or parts in them break, and you don't understand how to fix it. Sometimes the screws aren't threaded properly. sometimes the even the the nozzle will have issues where it's not properly manufactured or tooled. I just had tons of problems with them. Here's what I would suggest. You can definitely cut it with a cheap compressor i've been I used the first masters compressor that I bought on Amazon for like 90 or hundred bucks for six years. The only reason why I replaced it was that the little feet that it came on dry rotted out for some reason. I don't know why. And it was starting to be noisy and loud. So I bought a new one and that's been working really fine after three years. I expect it to last probably another three years at least. As far as airbrushes go, I would say definitely don't get a cheap one. Start out with a good name. I like Iwata. I like them because I have two of them. They work really well for me. After the cheap master's brushes, I got in a Wada Neo. I got it at like Michael's or somewhere because I was like, oh, there's one for know, 60 or $70 and it has to be better than the ones that I have. I was immediately happy, like so much happier. Right now on Amazon, it runs about $61. And if you get it at say Michael's or whatever craft store you go to, you probably get it with a little coupon or 10% or 15% off for probably about the same I was really happy with it because it was tooled properly. The needle functioned properly. It wasn't bent or anything like that. And everything just worked better. One thing I would also say that we didn't learn until we had already gummed it all up is take apart your airbrush and put it back together just a couple of times while it's clean, straight out of the box that it comes in. Because when you're trying to take it apart and put it back together when it's funky and gummed up or you have a problem, you're frustrated And it's easier to already have that kind of understanding of where all the parts go. And I would say, unless you're really, really dedicated to cleaning this thing, try not to take the trigger out because the trigger in particular is very difficult to get back in. So just take it apart, put it back together, take it apart, put it back together. Also, another thing that I like to use is I I played trumpet for a long time and I would always use valve oil with my trumpet. So I use that with my airbrush because... It's pretty much the same type of metal. It's designed for use with a lot of wetness. So why not use trumpet valve oil rather than any other type when your trigger starts to stick? And you'll know that your trigger will start to stick because the the spring inside will get something on it or get a little bit rusty or it'll just start to gum up. All you have to do is put a couple of drops of slide oil in and spray it back out and it'll work good as new. Usually now I do that almost once every two weeks or so and I still haven't gone through a whole bottle of slide oil. I usually use this stuff called Blue Juice, available for like, I don't know, five or six bucks at any music store or Amazon or wherever you might go. And then I'd like to say use Flow Improver. I didn't start with Flow Improver. I didn't understand why or how you use it. I wasn't really sure. I remember I would use water, but we would do a dumb thing where we would buy airbrush specific paints and then not water them down or do anything with them and try and spray them straight. And we would wonder why we were getting our airbrush gummed up. And a lot of it has to do, I think, with lubrication, because if you put some flow improver inside of the airbrush before you put paint in, usually I'll with GW paints, for instance, I'll put 10 to 12 drops of airbrush airbrush flow improver in. And then I'll put two globules of paint, which just means I open up the thing, get a crappy brush out and get out two globules of paint and mix it in with the airbrush flow improver. And what I find is that when you put the airbrush flow improver in there first, it lubricates the needle so that way the paint doesn't stick there or it doesn't stick as easily. You want it to be about I don't know, milky, I, like skim milk. I like to spray a little bit on my hand. What I find is if you spray it on the palm of your hand and it runs down the palm of your hand, then it's too wet. If you spray it on the palm of your hand and it sticks and, you just, and doesn't run at all, then that's pretty much perfect. I like to spray my hand a lot with airbrush. It's the easiest way of finding out whether or not something's good before I stick it on my model. Now, another thing that I didn't get initially, but I really wish I had were couplers, like uh, quick uncouple and couple mechanisms. And my wife got it for me for my birthday one year and And it was the upgrade that I never knew I needed that's, I don't know, it's maybe 15 bucks or something. With each quick decoupler, you get a little air mechanism that a little turn slide. It regulates the flow of air from the airbrush in what I like to use when I'm priming or when I'm doing some sort of like a base coat on a vehicle where I want a wide spray is about 20 PSI or maybe a little less than that. And then when I'm doing a lot of like, not necessarily fine detail work, but when I'm spraying close up, I like to go almost all the way down to like 10 PSI, just barely having it coming out. And I want to try to get the airbrush real close to the model. And you'll know that if your PSI is too high, because when you're spraying the model, the paint will just like, it'll spray under the model. And then you'll see it just get blasted away by the air. So that's kind of how you know whether or not you have too much air in coming out. But then for things like priming, you have to do it on almost 20 PSI because that primer is really, really, it's just real thick. It's, it's viscous. So if you don't, then it'll gum up your airbrush. Here's something that I didn't know also is that if you, if you do get a clog, which you will in your airbrush, instead of taking all the paint out and, and taking the airbrush apart and trying to get the, whatever it is out, take off the first little front mechanism of the airbrush, unscrew it where the needle is and then unscrew the needle, uh, the little thing that holds the needle in place and then activate the air. So air is coming out of the airbrush. And then with your hand, pull the needle out and back in, out and back in, maybe like three or four times. See if you can't get that clog just to spray out at a nice high PSI. A lot of times it'll actually work as long as you're you know, using the right, correct formula. A lot of times, like I said, I when I use Vallejo paints, I I usually try to go one for one. So one drop of Vallejo paint is one drop of Airbrush Flow Improver. And I put the Airbrush Flow Improver in first every time. And then with GW, like their their little pots, I usually use two globules of paint to about 12 droplets of Airbrush Flow Improver. So that's just kind of how I have found that works. I'm not really... I'm not an expert, I'll tell you that much, but I love not having to worry about cleaning out my airbrush a whole lot from clogs and things like that. So definitely use Flow Improver. Any paints can be used. I always say that. Any paints can be used. You just have to see how much pigment is in the paint to determine how much Flow Improver to use. And over the years, I've determined this by trial and error pretty much. I try to see what what looks good on the model once I've sprayed it and what doesn't go up the airbrush too much and kind of try to walk that fine line in between both of those. I'd say try what I've suggested for airbrush flow improver or water to paint and see if that works for you. And if it seems like it's still just a little bit too thin, then put in a little more paint. And if it's too thick, well, put in a little more airbrush flow improver and then mix it up. You can always put a little more of each in everybody asks me, they say, well, do you use it to prime? Do you use it to base coat? What do you use this airbrush for? I didn't prime because it took a long time. I didn't used to anyway. Now I do because I feel like it's a thinner coat and also it wastes less. So if you get tired of buying cans of spray paint, it might be easier to airbrush prime or at least it's more cost effective to do so. What I like to do before, when I first started was I would, I would just try base coating because that was easiest, right? You know, if you can base coat a space marine with whatever color it is, then bam, you're getting practice. You're figuring out where, you know, your hand-eye coordination, where the paint comes out and how, how long it is from the model to the nozzle. And that's a thing that you have to learn. I would say when you're using primer, it's easy because you just hold it far back, maybe like six inches back. But when you're trying to base coat, you kinda want to go more along the lines of like four-ish inches. And a lot of people when they base coat, especially like a space marine, they're like they just open that nozzle up and let as much, you know, as much come out as possible. And I'd say try not to do that. Try to pull the nozzle back only a little bit and and try not to hit like their belt, the space marine's belt, or their pauldrons or you know, anywhere that you don't want to hit. And if you do, then it's fine. You can always just paint over it, and that's what everybody's going to do. But what this will do is it'll help you practice your control so that eventually you'll be able to paint something and highlight it while there are colors around it, using a very low PSI, getting very close to the model, you know, using just like Zenithal highlights and things like that. I would definitely suggest that, although now I use my airbrush for almost a completely different method of, I hate painting trim. I don't know anybody that likes painting trim, but I have a lot of chaos stuff and I I do a lot of chaos stuff. And there's a lot of trim. In fact, actually a lot of the models that have come out recently have a lot of trim, especially for like Lumineth and everything like that. So what I'll do is I'll paint the trim with the airbrush. I'll base coat the trim with the airbrush. I will use a zenithal highlight which just means put the model down on the table and using the airbrush go over just the tops of it so that way when you're looking down you just you see like a little bit brighter on the whatever the trim is and then I will paint in the large flat plates in between the trim with whatever color it is like so if you're painting a space marines pauldron you would airbrush the outer sides or the trim and then you would Physically paint the inside, which I find to be a lot easier. because It's easier to stay in the lines. It's not as much. You don't have to like think about it as much. There aren't as many places for paint to not get into. Like on on the trim, you have to go the inside, the outside, the underside. But for the large flat plate, it's just one large flat plate. If it's red, it's red. I would say don't also don't use technical paints in your airbrush. Uh, that it's just sort of a bad idea. Don't use blood for the blood god. Don't use especially don't use any of the paints that have grit in it because that'll not work out well for your airbrush. It'll just gum up the airbrush because it's literal bits of grit that's going to get stuck in the very bottom of your airbrush, which really sucks. I learned that lesson the hard way. Don't use any of the Soulstone technical paints, the ones that you're supposed to use to paint gems and stuff with. And I would also say don't use like riser rust or anything like that through the airbrush. But what I have had a lot of good fun with is using, once once I get like say a tank painted up or a large model painted up and I know what color I want to um, shade it, usually that's brown because brown kind of goes with everything. I will take it and I'll put a one-to-one or sometimes even a two-to-one if I want it nice and thin of brown wash like Agrax Earthshade and Airbrush Floam Brewer, mix it up and I'll just spray it over the model. And what I find is that especially with tanks, you don't get as much of those like large plates being covered with shade and weird inconsistencies in your shade. It's a nice uniform shade. Now for this, you definitely want to make sure that your fingers aren't holding this, whatever it is that you're shading, because then you'll get fingerprints all over it. But I really like doing that now. And a lot of times what I'll do is I will paint something, I'll base coat it, and then I will seal it. I put that right through the airbrush. I don't even care. I use Vallejo polyurethane sealant. I'll shade it with the the sealant on and it just makes it so that the shade runs a little better and doesn't stand on those high, you know, those flat plates as easily. And you just don't have to do as much cleanup work with it. So that's kind of how I use my airbrush. I feel like anybody can use an airbrush. Anybody can start out with it and with just a little bit of patience, I'd say about a week's worth of work, you're going to definitely enjoy how you're using it. Oh, and another thing that I use my airbrush for is I use it when I'm trying to paint swords and axes and any kind of weapon that sticks out from a model. Cause I feel like you can do an easy fade in and out. And I would say use your airbrush to try to work different colors. in. when I was doing my Zinch, for example, I wanted to take a purple and then marry it with pink and purple and pink. Well, kind of like a blue, purple to blue on one side and then purple to pink on the other. And I used the airbrush to do that initially because I really liked how I could, especially for weapons, I could just go up and down the weapon with the, or with the darkest color. And then I would go up and down the weapon with a slightly less version of that and up and down with uh, again and again, and just not spraying as far down each time. And then you just get a nice light effect going from dark to light. Now, another thing I like to do is I like to keep some of the uh, paint in my airbrush. I don't clean out my airbrush after every single color if I'm trying to match colors. So if I'm going, say, purple, dark purple to light purple to pink, then I will leave some of that dark purple in when I do my light purple. And then I'll do leave some of the light purple in when I'm doing the pink. And then I'll do one or two like highlights with just the pink. So that way you're kind of marrying the colors together. And of course, brown works with everything because brown is the best color. So that's pretty much how I use my airbrush. I hope that you guys got something from this. I know that it's always hard starting something new. And it was hard for us too. Renee was right here with me and we had all these questions like, oh, what do we do about overspray? What do we do about this? What do we do about that? And as far as overspray goes, I I quickly learned that wherever you're pointing the airbrush is where the overspray is going to go. So if you point it at a wall, then you're going to airbrush the wall. But I never had to build or buy any big like mechanism or box to worry about that. I just started pointing my airbrush down at the model and not at the wall. Now I have a, a specific apron that I use when I airbrush. The overspray goes onto the apron and not onto like a lampshade or, or my computer monitors or anything like that. I would say that if you're using... Oil based paints, then you definitely want to have a good ventilation system. But if you're using water based paints, you're pretty much okay. At least I don't I don't use it. So, and I've not had any problems over the last I don't know, nine years now. If you have any questions about this, just feel free to ask. Seriously Narrative is on Facebook at facebook.com seriously narrative podcast or seriously narrative podcast at gmail.com, and I'd be happy to answer it. And if anybody wants to come down to High Tide Games, I'd be more than happy to show you how to use an airbrush. I can always before you buy, I can always bring down my old Iwata Neo. I still have it. It still works. Still works perfectly fine. And I'll show you exactly how to use it and how, you know, the tips and tricks that I use. And it usually takes about maybe an hour, hour and a half. And I feel like an hour and a half of tips and tricks will save you a week or two of like pulling your hair out and trying to figure out why is this not working? Why is it? Why am I not getting the results that I want? So uh, the option is always open to any gamer that comes down high tide. Just hit me up on Facebook or an email or through Rebecca and I'd be happy to do that. Hey, I'm here with Mike and we are going to talk about narratives. Well, specifically his narratives, because you guys have heard my narrative by now and you may have heard Alan's narrative. I don't know whether I'm going to put Alan before Mike or Mike before Alan.
1: Thank you very much for the uh, great insight there. And is he anti-Mike or am I anti-Alan?
0: You're anti-Alan and he's anti-Mike. It's very simple.
1: But it goes much deeper than just this as we play armies that are literally like against each other. In the lore and everything else. Yeah, the diametrically opposed armies. Yeah, he's a great guy.
0: Sure he is. <laughs> okay, so let's get down to brass tacks here. Let's talk about your vampires because that's what you're interested in right now. Uh, Mike's been running some soul blight and he's come up with sort of an interesting story about his vampire. Why don't you go ahead and introduce
1: him? What's his name? My vampire is Alexander Lathorne. He is my vampire lord who I have created up for this narrative he was in originally a general of nagash when nagash came out into uh, the realm of light hish when nagash came into the realm of hish he was one of the generals that went with nagash and was sent along his way to cause destruction cause mayhem burn cities and earn more souls for nagash
0: was he a vampire at this time or was he immortal
1: he was a vampire
0: Okay, so he was a a soul blight vampire that Nagash took into the realm of Hish with him intentionally.
1: And he was like, was he punishing you for some reason? Well, at the time, Nagash had made the darkness everywhere. So he kind of blotted out all the light, thus allowing a vampire to go in and cause mayhem.
0: I was just wondering, because it seems like a lot of magic has to do with light. And I feel like bringing vampires with you is just... It's just cruel, right?
1: That's why Nagash is a giant clown with clown shoes on. Yes. And he's, he's a, a jerk clown. to all vampires. You know, we used to rule, and then this giant undead guy came in and was like, Hey, I control undead. Guess what you guys are. And we kind of got hogtied and roped into his armies.
0: Great. Excellent. I love it. Nagash loves it. So what are you doing now that Nagash is safely tucked away in his bed of spidery goodness?
1: Oh, you mean since... uh. My boy Teclas helped him out and uh, putting him down for a little while there.
0: Yeah, well, he was a sleepy boy, and Teclas was like, You really need to go and sleep off your hangover a little bit. You're getting a little drunk on power there, Nagash. And Nagash was like, Yeah, you're right. And so now he's kind of in seclusion, gathering his power back up, reforming himself. What has happened since then? What what has your vampire felt since then?
1: Currently, right now, there is a gigantic power struggle. And with Nagash, out of the picture, there is more or less this power vacuum right now. And it's kind of between Manfred and Neferata. And Manfred specifically said, Hey, I'm going to go invade her now. There's nothing stopping me. Yeah, that's true. At the moment, my vampire lord's kind of just sitting back, gaining power, getting a larger army, gaining artifacts from other fallen heroes. And he's not quite sure which of the two he's going to cast his lot with yet, or he may wait until they destroy each other and then come in and pick up the remains and go, now I'm here. Let
0: me get this straight. And I'm just making sure that everybody knows this. Your vampires from the Viracus bloodline, right?
1: Yes. My vampire Lord is part is with the Viracus bloodline.
0: Okay, great. Excellent. So how would your goals or rather your vampires goals align with the great necromancer's goals at the moment?
1: Great necromancer being Negash. Nagash,
0: Yeah. that is one of his like nicknames.
1: So one way that my guy would, my vampire lord would fit in with Nagash is it's challenging because the great necromancers doesn't really share his plans with anybody. He just kind of does his thing until the Skaven kind of come in and ruin everything for him.
0: Like they always do. I love it. It's not hard to
1: think about it and look down at the ground every so often before the rats come in and chew a hole through your giant pyramid of death.
0: You know, you would assume that, but my Dome of Bone has had particular troubles with rats. That's one of the things that my Osiarch Bone Reapers and their mortals have had all kinds of trouble with Skaven. They just live underneath of their city of bone. Who knew that rats like to chew on bones? Let me ask you then, how do your goals not align with Nagash's? I know you said that there's a power vacuum and you're looking to fill it, but right now Nagash appears to have said Archeon I hate you and I'm coming after you. Ah Sigmar you're a traitor. I'm coming after you too eventually. And you over there Teclas I hate you even more and I'm going to come after you especially. What do you think of those goals?
1: So those goals are great and awesome for Nagash, but as just a basic vampire I am not stepping into the ring with people like Teclas and Sigmar and Archeon because I'm sorry. I'm a vampire lord. I don't mess with gods too much. I so, completely understand. So one of the things that my vampire lord is doing is he is not working to restore power to Nagash.
0: Yeah, I can understand that. Where is he from? Where where did he come from?
1: He's from the Roma Shaiish. He's actually from one of the lost cities that were there.
0: Ooh. Was he? Let me ask you, I also noticed that your zombies have some particularly bright colors on them. Where, where do they come from?
1: My zombies are actually all nobles. So one of the things my vampire lord does is when he defeats a city or a town, anybody who is a high-ranking member of this society becomes a zombie.
0: Ah, like a reverse noblesse oblige?
1: Of course. And also, they're usually the best kept.
0: Oh yeah, they're pristinely kept, of course.
1: So they're one of the easiest ones to just throw at an enemy. And they're bright colorful things, so they tend to attract the attention of uh, the enemy.
0: Nice, nice. I love it. I love it. Let me ask you, why does he feel why does he feel compelled to spurn these nobles in death? Why does he feel compelled to make them the lowest of their army? Was there something that happened In its background or in your vampire's lore that just says, hey, I hate nobles for this particular reason.
1: There absolutely is. And that was when he was a human. He was a soldier on the battlefield. During one of the fights he was in, an enemy enemy general and his bodyguards started attacking his unit. Well, during the fight, he slayed the enemy general. Thinking nothing of it, he continued the fight. Well, it ended up being that that particular general happened to be the noble's son, And my vampire lord, in his human time as a soldier, they lost that fight. Kind of like a border skirmish. That wasn't, I'm guessing, wasn't supposed to be
0: particularly uh, fatal for that noble son. And so your vampire lord as a human was captured at the end of the battle after having slain his son. Is that right?
1: Absolutely is. For his punishment, he was turned into a vampire. His town that they were defending was completely raised to the ground there was nothing left and he was forced into a dungeon to be tortured and starved until finally he broke free that sounds awful
0: i could definitely see him going a little bit crazy because of that
1: thus his reasoning for hating any nobles or anybody who tends to just think themselves above their fellow soldiers
0: so let me ask you i love that kind of like rags to riches sort of common soldier to vampire lord Kind of thing. And I I love that even though he's sort of crazy and he's been around for God knows how many years, he still has that. Whenever you think about a vampire, they always seem to have one little tiny tenuous grasp on who they used to be. Whether it's a sense of compassion toward animals for some, or a sense of rightness, or maybe just insanity, it seems like they cling on to one little thing. And It appears that your vampire lord is clinging on to this one last little noblesse oblige, this theory that nobles are all treating their underlings very poorly, right?
1: Absolutely. In the game itself, I represented, more or less, I focused, I try to throw him into like the enemy's generals as his rage comes over and he wants to eliminate that general in more of a one-on-one fight. To be fair, this usually doesn't work out for him too terribly well when the enemy general is about 300 points more than him and an absolute beat stick. Yeah. But in the narrative lore, it works out pretty well because at that point, maybe they don't kill the vampire lord and his arm is able to go through and raise.
0: Yeah, you've had actually really good luck with this army. Well, I shouldn't say luck. You've actually provided... Great insight and skill to this army. I believe you've only lost maybe one or two times with the the army in its entirety, and I think you've played what now six or seven games.
1: I think it's about six games so far that I play with them, and yeah, there's only been uh, twice that I've lost with it. For coming in, for this is my first army for AOS 3.0. This has been a very powerful army, and I've been very impressed with how it works on the table and a lot of the rules for it. It synergizes very well with itself.
0: It definitely does. It definitely does. I was going to ask, does your general have any significant weaknesses? And like, how do you portray that on the tabletop? But you kind of just answer that question with your vampire just jumping into the fray, being overcome by feelings of bloodlust and maybe feelings of rage. They aren't treating their common soldiers right. I need to go kill them. But let me ask you, does your army or your general have any significant strengths that you like to uh, use on the tabletop?
1: Well, one of the, the good strengths that the general that I'd like to say I have with this one here is uh, his efficient use of nobles being zombies.
0: Efficient use of nobles. That's hilarious. Okay, go on. Continue. Continue.
1: Zombies themselves on the table are, uh, well, as everybody should know very now, they're a very powerful unit.
0: They're very good. Very fragile, but very good.
1: He likes to take those and move them in a nice big group directly up at the enemy and just go, you have to deal with it.
0: Yeah, and you really do.
1: And while the enemy army is focusing on that, his abilities to fly and be able to move quickly are a a nice thing to be able to move around those target units and get to where he needs to get to.
0: Now, I noticed that you have some Graveguard in your army. How do you like those? Have the, have they been performing particularly well for you?
1: The Graveguard actually do an amazing job. I believe they hit well above their point cost and what they do, especially when using the two-handed weapons with them. They're an absolute fun unit to run, a powerful unit. They're a great standing ability where they can just stay on the, stay on the table, giving them a slight bonus to their saves, to their hits abilities. And... As I said, with their being able to punch above their weight class, I can almost toss them into any unit knowing that I'm pretty much guaranteed to wipe that unit off the table in their turn.
0: Yeah, they're really good. Now, let me ask you, what is your favorite non-hero unit on the tabletop in this army? It doesn't have to necessarily be a power play, like what works best for you, but what do you have the most fun with that unit?
1: I absolutely had the most fun playing my zombies. Yeah. Just the fact that, I can talk them up so much about what they do and the abilities they have. And I just watched my opponent going, I want to stay away from that unit and literally watching them pull back units that would slaughter through them just because there's so much fear now of they're going to murder it.
0: Oh yeah. I remember one of Mike's first opponents was a guy who ran go in a thousand points and man, that was a hard army to beat and you psyched him out. Didn't you with the zombies?
1: I did. I was able to, uh, I hyped up the zombies so much that he pulled, he continuously pulled his units back and let me just control the objectives the entire fight.
0: And it's not like you weren't telling him information about your army. You were being good guy Mike, right? You were just telling him the truth about what your army could do. You were making sure that he didn't
1: get gotcha'd, right? One of the big things I enjoy doing and I found is if you tell someone literally exactly what your units can do, it's so much easier than trying to play a gotcha game. Because you've literally told them all the power that this unit has, and then you just let them stop and think and realize they have nothing they can do about it.
0: They're like, oh my God, how am I going to deal with that? Oh, and then they second guess themselves, and then they deploy poorly, or they deploy out of range, or they allow you to control the center objectives, which I believe that's what happened in that game. He was like, oh no, I'm not going to let you get Gotrick with 40 zombies. I'm going to pull him back. To a corner of the board and, and that you just said okay and then you controlled them right?
1: Exactly. When I tell my opponent that my zombies can move 10 inches a turn and pile in 6 inches and I set them in as close to the enemy as I can they have a nice thing of they they take their units and they pull them back nice deep into their own deployment zone nice and away from them so I can't get that first turn charge off on them perfectly fine by me because at that point there I just watch up the rest of my army on the objectives and just sit there yeah, yeah, that's a good strategy. So
0: let me ask you then, what is your favorite non... I'm sorry, what is the non-hero unit that you are most excited to paint up?
1: That I'm most excited to paint up, besides my zombies, I really enjoy painting up them, would probably be my grave guard, Simply because it's a unit that I feel you can do a lot. I'm going to rust, make my guys look very rusty and very broken down armor-wise. They have a lot going on with their unit without being overly detailed.
0: Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about, because when I was painting up a bunch and Renee was painting up a bunch, we just kind of were like, oh, well, these are really easy. Once you do the bone after that, it's just all detail work. He's a little bit of cloth, a little bit of armor, and then the weapons. And then after that, it was all effects, right? So you could feel free to go crazy with the effects. You could make them bloody. You could make them charred. You could make them rusty. You could do anything because just getting the paint on the models and getting them to a respectable standard takes you no time at all,
1: right? Absolutely. And especially someone like me who horribly despises painting models.
0: I know. So what we've been doing though, is I'll play dead by daylight and then Mike will paint models and he'll watch me play dead by daylight and paint. And then we'll switch and I'll paint models and watch him play dead by daylight. So we, I do this with Alan too. And it really helps us with painting. I noticed that over the last couple of days, I'd say in the last three days, you've painted two of those days, right? Or have you painted all three?
1: I've actually painted all three of those days. And I've each day, my goal is I choose just one paint and, like, my entire group of 20 zombies that I have. And I'm like, okay, today I'm going to do all of the wood on them. Or I'm going to do all of their clothes or all of the skin. And I, that's all I focus on.
0: And those new zombies, they are a really intricate kit, right? They have no business being this intricate, do they not?
1: For a unit that has no save whatsoever, dies to a sift breeze and has a high five of doom that's really about all they have they can do (laughs) high five
0: of doom i love that so let me ask you then what army or armies do you think that your army would have an easy time going up against what have you what have you faced so far that you're like oh this was easy peasy lemon squeezy
1: so one of the armies that i've actually think my my army did very well against are elite armies armies that have a small model count But models that are models that tend to be more powerful, have more strengths behind them, higher wounds, because a lot of my army does mortal wounds on attacks. A lot of my units do mortal wounds on attacks. They have the ability to hit multiple times, deal mortal wounds on the wound rolls, to hit rolls, and they're mobs. So I can and they're on small bases. So I'm able to get a large amount of models around units very quickly, especially elite units, larger base units and pour in a massive amount of tax to them and drop them down very quickly.
0: Yeah, Grave Guard being on 25s and also the zombies being on 25s. They're
1: awesome for that, right? Oh, they absolutely are.
0: So you think you would have an easier time against armies like Stormcast, which have a low model count and you could just eat right up with your mortal
1: wounds? So fighting against Stormcast itself is going to be one of those things that might be a little more challenging as with all their new models coming out, they have a good amount of elite power they can do with their abilities yeah but i still think it would be a pretty fair match between the two of us
0: yeah i think they are i think that stormcast are really powerful now i think they have a lot of good tools and i think that you would have a hard match against them but i think that you could also totally win that match
1: i'm pretty sure that i could my, my army is very even for only having like a four inch movement they're a very mobile army and they get moved around the board really quick So that being said, what armies do you think you would
0: struggle against?
1: One of the big things I struggle against with this army are horde killer armies or armies that in melee, when I destroy that unit, they get attacks back. Your corn units are one of those uh, big ones that I tend to have a struggle against because I have little to no shooting in my army and I have to get into melee with you. So even if I Get the first turn off and I slaughter that unit down. I'm like, yeah, those attacks that come back tend to knock out a good third to half of that unit. Yeah, it really is a, kind of a
0: losing equation when your guys have no armor. And I, I think, I think in the very first battle that we had, you set up your zombies first and foremost, like square in the center. And you were like, haha, zombies are right here. What are you going to do? And I was like, oh, I'm just going to put like corn, where's the corn? Right across from them. Come at me, bro. And you either had the option of coming at me and me counterattacking you when I died, or you could wait for me to come to you, and that would be even worse because i just charge you.
1: Absolutely. And it was it was a good learning game. It taught me a lot about how to play this army. It was one of the first fights I actually did with the arm. I think you were my second or third fight I did with this army.
0: Yeah, I think it was the third.
1: But it was it taught me a lot on how to do this army because absolutely, like, I threw these zombies, and I'm like, all right, he's going to have to look at this and go, all right, what am I going to deal with it? And you just, like, you tossed a unit up against me. i like,
0: meh. Yeah, if that unit dies, I get a blood point.
1: Thanks, and man. that right there caused me so much dilemma with that because it, it literally it tied up my zombies. Like, I couldn't use them for how I needed to use them, which was to be a screen, to be a wall, to be able to push... Against you when you could just move guys into it and beat them down.
0: Yeah, not only that, but I put a unit behind him and I put a blood secretor just enough, just in range enough, so that way Mike would have to choose. He he was able to get to the blood secretor with like I don't know maybe like eight zombies or so. So he was thinking to himself, "Oh, do I do I split my attacks?" And eventually, you succumb to that that dark temptress of splitting your attacks. And I think that it really didn't work out well for you because you didn't even kill all of the corn warriors in one go. Right?
1: No, I don't think I actually wiped any of your units out If I think correct. Well, I may have gotten, no. Like you one. got a
0: couple of them, but you definitely didn't, you didn't wipe that unit at once, which you needed to do. And you didn't wipe out the blood crater because you were only able to get eight zombies into them. So hopefully I was hoping to teach you one lesson with that. Well, actually two lessons. First lesson being, don't put your zombies down first. And you have never put your zombies down first since, right?
1: I have not. They are one of my last units that go down on the table. It's always that fear of, I see the opponent where I'm setting up everything and they're like, all right, cool. I think I got this. And then all of a sudden, 40 zombies go down in a spot where they didn't want them. And then it's like, oh, no.
0: Yeah, that's good. And then I I, hopefully I taught you the second thing, which is never, ever split your attacks. Even if you have a a unit that is on one wound or two wounds and you have a billion attacks coming up against them and you're like, well, I could maybe put six or eight attacks into some other unit. If you need that unit to die, you need to kill that unit immediately. Like those corn warriors, they either they needed to die or the blood secretor needed to die. But both of them half dying was a really poor alternative,
1: right? Oh, absolutely. Because you got attacks back, which meant you got more attacks that came into me. Because even when I returned my attacks back on you and almost finished off that unit, your guys still died and got more attacks back in. And by that point there, I only had like 10 zombies left. That really wasn't enough to really do much of anything at all.
0: No, I think what I did after that was I charged in some like, I think I charged in some Wrathmongers. Yeah, the guys, <laughs> Mike is, this is great radio. Mike is making this like, this like Ugrachaka <laughs> movement over there. Yeah, those Wrathmongers got them. Let me ask you then, if you had to choose one unit from another army to be in your army, like as either an ally or just in your army normally, what would it be?
1: This question made me really think about what is this army missing? And what I came to was I have, as I stated before, I have no range really with this unit. A good cannon unit that was able to have a good range to pump out some mortal wounds would be nice. Or I would love to have the new cruel boys crossbowmen with their damage output that they can do. A unit like that to be able to back up that I could put behind zombies or put behind my grave guard that could be a screen to help shoot while they engage, I think would actually work really well with this army.
0: Yeah, like uh, and when we were playing Total War and we had those deck droppers that were just, or deck gunners that were just behind the units that were screening. Remember those? And they would just shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot
1: absolutely they did an amazing job with that with that and it was a great thing too because we could split up and i control them while you control the melee part of the army and playing the game we would go through and we would beat every army that came at us
0: yeah it was awesome mike and i played a bunch of total war warhammer 2 together and i, I actually really want to play a little bit more we're definitely gonna have to get get in on that again and when total warhammer 3 comes out oh we're definitely gonna play
1: it i'm definitely looking forward to when total warhammer 3 comes out
0: I loved playing with you. That was that was really awesome. So you're saying that you want another shooting unit? I would
1: like a shooting unit. Period.
0: Okay. So other than like the uh, zombie dragon, which does have a shooting attack, but it's not that
1: great. I have a, I have a single attack that hits on threes. That if I roll that two or one, well, my shooting attack is done for the round. Yeah, I feel you. I feel you. I couldn't throw in Nagash, gash, spam cast arcane bolts but it's not the same as having just an actual archer shooting unit to back up your units.
0: Yeah, I agree. You can kind of use magic to supplement shooting, but sometimes that just doesn't work, especially because the new magic is so limited. It's 12 inches. You kind of have to sit there and hold it. So I'm guessing this is um, this responses for strategy, not necessarily for flavor, or do you think it could be both?
1: I could use this one as both. On there, it's definitely a strategy point as it's one of the things your army, the army itself is lacking it is a good shooting unit. Uh, as far as narrative wise, when we played Total Warhammer, we played like these undead pirates and they had these giant ships with these cannons on it. And those guys, I think, would just be awesome to be able to bring in, have like these death armies, these new ones that came in, these soul-like Gravelords, some type of like giant monster con- con- golem with cannons on their arms it would just be an awesome thing to see on the tabletop. Or maybe a Big Bertha. Oh, I would love to have a Big Bertha. So be awesome. for those who don't know, Big Bertha was this massive cannon that you could get in the game, which I've always enjoyed the name Big Bertha whenever i able to use a giant artillery piece or a cannon.
0: I'd like to talk a little bit about how my Nighthaunt were conceived because I really, really loved the thought of painting Nighthaunt with like a flame scheme. But I always thought maybe it didn't work with Nighthaunt or maybe it wouldn't look right or maybe it wouldn't sound right. But then I thought, well, the great necromancer has sort of all of these emotions that he captures into the night haunt, and they sort of exemplify one emotion intensely. Most of the time, it's either depression or some sort of a fear effect or something like that. So what I thought to myself was, what about in the age of chaos when Archeon was coming through Shaiish and just burning city after city in Shaiish, and maybe the Great Necromancer? He was like, okay, hold that city at all costs, and the vampire lords there were like, yes, sir, and the mortals there, you know, did what the vampires wanted because
1: they didn't want to die by the vampires.
0: Exactly, they were kind of enslaved. Corn would uh, in my story, corn besieged be this. corn. Yeah, of course, it had to be corn. Corn besieged this city, and after five days, Corn got upset—not Corn, but the generals in the Corn Army got upset because it was taking too long, and they knew that Archon would get upset. So they decided, "We're just going to burn this thing to the ground." So they set the whole place on fire, the whole city on fire. They just hell forged cannoned it down, and everybody began to flee because the whole the- city was on fire.
1: That's not the best way to get blood for the blood god and skulls for the skull throne.
0: Well, you know, charred skulls are still skulls, right? I mean, so they burn, maim, kill. You got to remember that. So (laughs) they fled. The vampires fled in their carriages as it was daytime when they were being attacked. And the common folk fled as well. Some on fire, some not. And so to punish them, the great necromancer was like, okay, well, you you failed number one and you fled number two. So I will make you night haunt and you will be forever on fire. You will be forever on fire and you'll be unable to run from those flames as they will always be consuming you and they'll never go out and they'll always follow you no matter where you run.
1: Gash is a jerk.
0: He absolutely is.
1: Not only did you guys fight for five days while I figured out what else I was doing, but even though they uh, you know, used cannons on you, which you didn't really have any chance to fight it back against, I'm gonna light you on fire now for the rest of your existence.
0: Yeah, so this fire is both consuming them and also not able to catch up with them completely. So they're constantly running from this fire. And I like that the night haunt represented those extreme emotions, but I thought maybe overwhelming dread or panic, because this isn't fear. Fear is like The thing that you get when you wake up in the middle of the night from a scary dream, right? That's fear. Or the sort of fear that you might have when you lose your job. That's fear, right? Oh, how am I going to do this? Or How am I going to do that? But panic is that feeling that you get when you are on fire.
1: You're like, oh crap,
0: what am I going to do about this?
1: It's the difference between fearing something and being terrified of something.
0: Yeah. So this is panic. Not just panic, but also just dread. Like, this is going to get us. So that's what they instill in others. And to do this, I painted them purple with sort of a ghostly green and white skin. But then at the edges of their tatters, it fades to like a fire, representing the fire that's forever chasing them. Which you did an
1: amazing job painting these up, by the way. Like, they look great on the table.
0: Thank you very much, Mike. That's greatly appreciated. So when I do Ossiarch Bone Reapers, I want to make their bones the charred remains of that city that burned. Not only does it feel sort of fitting, but it also serves to like psychologically drive the Night Nighthaunt that's being for my other army. If these were the mortal remains that were formed into Night haunt warriors, that would be pretty awful, wouldn't it?
1: That would be absolutely awful. Especially if like you were a Night Nighthaunt and you look back and while you're on fire and you literally see your corpse or your bones that are like burnt walking towards you.
0: Oh yeah, totally. That'd be awful.
1: Have I said Nagash is a jerk? I feel like I should state that Nagash is a jerk.
0: Yeah. Nagash is definitely petty and he is just awful to almost everybody, but some people he's not awful to. And you know who, you know what Nagash reminds me of? He reminds me of a, like an abusive parent. Sometimes, that abusive parent can uh, be very loving, sort of at random. And then sometimes you could do something really wrong and they barely punish you. They're like, oh, you know, boys will be boys, that kind of thing. But then sometimes you'll do something really little that will annoy him and he will haul off and beat you for it. You know, like full on with a belt or something. And that's what Nagash feels like. He feels like that bad parent who just just punishes indiscriminately. And as he sort of feels like if he's in a bad mood, then he's going to punish you extra hard. And if he's not in a bad mood, well, maybe you just slide off with a little bit of a yelling
1: too. I would agree with you on that one there. It does sound definitely like someone with Nagash. I also feel like Nagash is kind of that, um, you know, the same way the giant kid just playing with his toys, they mean nothing to him, but while he uses them or while he's playing with his toys, or his thing. But as soon as he's done and wants to go on the next thing, they're forgot.
0: Yeah. It kind of feels like that because it's sort of, he has this thing where he's like, Oh, all is Nagash all are one. And that's how we're going to defeat chaos. But all the vampires and vampire Lords and bone reapers and Archon, the black and everybody that I've seen, they all sort of have different ambitions. They all want different things. And I feel like if he's going to try and do that, try to, Exercise control over everything, he's not going to have control over anything at all.
1: No, Nagash definitely is one of those people who tries to control using force. And if he can't control you using force, then he'd rather just destroy you and then just rebring you back under his own power.
0: Yeah, and it feels like he always tries to use a stick. It's always the stick with Nagash. Or if it is the cheese, then he's like force feeding the cheese down your throat and you're like "Ah, oh, i'm too much cheese no nagash no please i'm choking on the cheese and he's like
1: you'll take the cheese because i you love it i find that slightly offensive as someone who really enjoys cheese mike that really you had to cheese. use cheese in this in this description here i feel like that was a personal little little jive there towards me there
0: no mike really really likes cheese we eat cheese on everything it's very delicious <laughs> This segment brought to you by Velveeta. No, I'm <laughs> just kidding.
1: Totally for sponsors, Velveeta.
0: No, no, that's okay. Thank you. Let's talk about the Wogfather because I love me some Wogfather. Let me give a little bit of intro because you're going to be talking about this guy for a little bit. Back in 2018, we attended Nova Open and I ran sort of the Nova narrative for AOS and Mike was kind enough to buy a ticket and come and he brought this character known as the Father. And if I recall correctly, it was an orc who, with a business suit, who was kind of like a, like a Don, like a mafia boss.
1: Originally, when we came to this event that you had going for this one here. we had to make our own hero for it. And that was one of the big things about here is you made your own custom hero. You could give him like a ranged hero. You could make like a, sh- a melee hero. And then you had magic. And magic is one of the big things that I like latched onto. And I was looking at this one here. And one of the big things I latched on to it was because very few people were doing it. Like everyone made a good strong melee hero or, or had like a ranged hero that did a massive amount of damage. But there was, I think, one or two of the people that made him a, a wizard. So I start making this wizard, and I'm playing and I'm doing a couple of my games here. And one of the guys that I'm playing against, as we're doing this match stuff like that, I was joking around that. You're going to fight my gang. And he goes, Are you a Don? No, wait, are you a Wog Father? And I'm like, oh, I am the Wog Father. And it just went from there of being the Wog Father. And it was such a fun thing being the Wog Father. It just exploded from there. I had made all these pins. He's badges. actually
0: holding his hands up in a little heart shape near <laughs> his heart. Because that's great radio. I just I want to make, let you know this. He's He's got this little heart-shaped pin, pin to his... Oh, it's so funny. Yeah, he did. Make, he made tons of pins, and he would he would hand them out and say, Join the walk, Father.
1: The pins said, I want... It was the Uncle Sam, but it was an orc. And he was pointing, and he was like, I want you for the biggest wog. And I would give them out to people. And I was like, you want to join the biggest wog? I was like, I know you do. Or do you want to join the walk, Father? <laughs> and... People got into it. Like by the end of the event, everybody had a pin. I had ran out of pins entirely and given a pin to everybody. And I was so excited too. You made a lot of those pins. So one of the great things you did at this event was you had the people split up into two teams. And I'll let you explain that in a second. But during fights that they were going on, if one side was losing, you allowed other players to be able to assist that side. bring in like a like assist with like a unit with them to give a thing. And so, what I started doing is, I would go to people and I'd be like, You want the Wog Father's help? You got to pay for the Wog Father's help if you want the Wog Father. We had these little coins which you could use and use for a little side market on there. Mm-hmm. But I would help out like anybody I could. Like, oh, I already would them to just say, Yeah, you know, I want, want the help. And I would give them a unit.
0: Mike actually used a lot, almost all, if not all, of his own coin on this if they couldn't pay he would just say no problem the wog father has you but you might have to do a service
1: later so that was actually one of the big things i did is if people like didn't want to pay me i'm like it's okay you just owe the wog father a favor that was great a lot of these favors came up in the final fight in in this giant massive siege at the end and One of the fights I remember really, really well on there. I lost, I think, every single fight that I did with my army. But I had a blast with it. And one of the fights I did, the guy that I was fighting, his character was going insane. Like he was hearing voices and he couldn't focus on anything. And his character was literally going insane. So after the fight, after he beat my army, I was like, all of a sudden, all the voices stop. And one voice you hear comes crystal clear into your mind you hear the walk father's voice
0: <laughs>
1: and he's telling you at the giant siege at the end, you need to open up these gates.
0: Oh yeah. That guy, he was going for the opposite side. See, we had, we had people who were the invaders and Mike's Wog father was part of the invaders. And we had people who were the defenders of the city. And uh, this guy was on the defense
1: and it was great because he was like, Oh, I'm totally on board for this. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. Everything culminates now to this gigantic siege, and I mean, this siege is like I think we had seven tables long, and it was this massive wall that was there. We had a whole water section fight of it. It was it was a massive, massive siege.
0: We had 26 feet of uh, of wall, if you're wondering.
1: It was extremely well painted and well detailed wall.
0: Oh well, thank you. Uh, you know, Justin and I. You know, Justin, from the last podcast, uh, we decided to go half and half on a wall. Like I said, well, if I get 12 and a half feet of wall and you get 12 and a half feet of wall, we'll have a really big wall. And Justin said, oh, that's great. Well, what about buildings and I said oh well if you get half the buildings I'll get half the buildings and so we ended up really spending a whole lot on the seed uh, on the stuff but I was moving house at the time so I insisted on a really basic paint job and I will say we got it painted up and then after we painted it we we tried to detail it as well as we could we did a little bit of fancy work on the windows but we still have that wall and we will bring it back to nova next this year 2022 nova open
1: no I'm really looking forward to that one. Whenever, whenever Nova comes back around, I am excited for this. So, come let's this gigantic final siege. Throughout favors, like the Wogfather, I got like this giant hand that was a floating mount that we used from one of the players as one of his favors to the Wogfather. I had like an opponent on the other side that betrayed his own side, like opened up these doors. All of a sudden we had instant access to the enemy's side. I had players that had like Put bodyguard units around the Wog Father, like it was a lot of stuff, and it was an awesome, awesome siege. And then Matt did something that was just amazing.
0: What? What? I, okay, it was surprising. I'll tell you that
1: it was surprising, and it was amazing. I had baleful romgets that I had made up for that I was using with my army, and I had one on my side, and I had one on the enemy's side. And my first thought was our side will use them. and will pop pot back over into their side. Well, this player, his goal was he was trying to find a power source that he could use to feed like his army and his people for like a while. And Matt looks at him and goes, you sense a really strong force.
0: It was the Ideneth Deepkin. They were looking for a particularly strong
1: soul. That's what it was. So he's like, oh, and they found one. You sense a really strong soul. And he goes, who? He goes, the Wogfather.
0: father
1: <laughs> <laughs> and he jumps to this baleful realm gate and comes in right behind my unit and using his abilities like instant kills me with the Wog Father. i think did like 38 wounds to him in one hit it was like well i can't make all these saves and dude had an
0: achillean king a buttload of mm. eels he had a ton of stuff and he also had like i don't know like 20 Namarty. It was was pretty great.
1: So he murders me and he just sucks my soul. Yep. And one of the nice things about this siege and what made it so fun was when a unit died, you could bring them back. So there wasn't anybody who would get tabled on turn one and then not be able to continue with this siege. Every round you were allowed to bring in a unit. So you could constantly bring in and join and have fun.
0: Let me be more specific about that. What I wanted was, I feel like when you're playing in a big siege or when you're playing in an apocalypse battle... It always sucks when your whatever it is, Titan, your Warlord Titan, your Archeon, your Nagash. When they get blown off the table turn one because your opponents don't want to deal with it, it's unfun. You don't get to play with your toys. And so I said, yes, every single player in this battle can bring back one unit per turn for free. And they just come in as though they were like at the beginning of the command phase. So they could still use their magic. They could still use everything else like that. They didn't even have to. Bring them back during the reinforcements phase. You know, it it culminated in oh, I've got Alarial and you killed her. I'll just bring her back. I mean, you they got the they get points for killing enemy units, so it's not like it's bad that they kill them. And if they kill uh unique units, they would get two points. So yeah, go ahead and target that Archeon. Go ahead and target that Alarial. It'll get you two points. And then the larial player or the Archeon player gets to bring them back in and actually use them the next turn. So it's not, it creates less of a feel bad type of environment, if that makes sense.
1: Absolutely. The great thing about this and in my own narrative was since the Wogfather's soul was stolen, I did not bring him back. I let him stay dead on the table. And Matt kind of felt bad for that one for a little bit too. He goes, I'd like bring him back. I was like, he's dead. Like, he's gone. His soul is... There's no bringing him back for this one here. All I can say is Matt said, okay. I respect your decision. I respect your decision. Matt said, okay. His soul is not gone. If you kill the entire Idaneth Deepkin on the table without him being able to bring a unit back in the next turn, you'll get the Wogfather soul back. And, oh boy. People on the attacker's side of the table started just flooding units at this guy he oh, was yeah. attacked from every single angle by units being pulled in dropped in everywhere and you,
0: he, you have to understand that at this point i did deepkin were the boogeyman army they were the biggest baddest newest army and this guy brought a ton of eels and an Akelian king i mean i'm not going to feel bad because he teleported his entire army on the other side of the battlefield what did he think was gonna happen
1: i'll give him credit he fought off for the full five rounds, stuff like that. He fought off people. I and mean, he would lose units, but we we couldn't kill off everything in one turn. I and quite. he got away with the Wogfather's soul. And at the accumulation of the battle, the attackers we lost the fight. Defenders actually accumulated, I think, three more points than like the attack. It was a very, 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 very close. close game,
0: real close.
1: And at the end of it, I looked the person. I was like. Just so you know, you hear some voices coming out of that their soul. I told him, I was like, he's going to start corrupting all of your guys. And he looked at me, he goes, oh no.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that Eidnith player was particularly happy with the outcome because uh, he knew that he had a very powerful army and he knew that, you know, everybody else, not ganging up on him, but rightfully so targeting him for what he did, he knew he was going to be a target for this. He was a very good sport about it and and I I love that at the end his prize wasn't so much of a prize but more of a monkey's paw if you will.
1: Absolutely agree. The entire event itself was absolutely awesome and everybody had like a great time with it. Like I don't think we had any players that were salty or angry or anything else with the way everything turned out. Everybody I feel just loved it. and you did an amazing job running this entire event.
0: Oh, thank you. Was yeah. You- I wanted to point out that this is a 15 on 15 person event and it happened over the course of about five hours. We went a whole five rounds and almost everybody had a full army at every day, a full army at the beginning and almost everybody had a full army at turn three and everybody respected the 20 minute turn limit. We had dice down at 20 minutes and I had a couple of players that were that would go back and forth and just watch to make sure like, oh, you need to shoot somebody. No problem. We'll watch. We would ask who the player was and we'd say, OK, you need to make some saves over here. And I, it was great. Everybody respected the term limits, the 20 minute term limits. And I think everybody had a good time. I don't think anybody at the end of 20 minutes was still saying, well, my opponent isn't rolling fast enough for me or anything like nobody slow played and everybody had a really good time. I want to run it exactly like that in the future. It's how I ran it at High Tide Games when I when I practiced with Justin, and it worked fine.
1: Yeah, it was great. And as you said, if one player was rolling on our side, we just need someone like one. Any of the players next to you could look over and watch the rolls and see. And then we would just you need to make six armor saves and two mortal wound saves. Everything rolled. It was like clockwork. It was yeah, amazing it really how cool. well how well everything worked together for that many people on a table. And being that surprised. crowded next to each other, it was smooth and it was nice.
0: I'll give you a little bit of background for this. So in Games Day 1998, we went, to, um, we went to Games Day in Baltimore. As a kid, I went as maybe like a 17-year-old. And I thought that one of the best events, the thing that shaped my adolescent childhood as far as Warhammer goes was an event where they had a great siege and I guess it was maybe five players versus five players and I was playing some Skaven and there were a bunch of other players. It was great. It was something that I remembered for a long time and I always wanted to recreate it. I wanted a wall. I wanted a wall to do a siege on. I wanted a town behind it. I wanted some woods and stuff in front of it and I wanted players to play with it and Nova Open gave me that chance. They said okay well you go Go ahead and grab 30 players, have an AOS narrative, and you can you can just do the siege. And after I was able to get a well enough paying position that I could afford this type of terrain, I said, I'm going to do this. And we did it. And Justin and I, that was like sort of, you make a goal in your hobby life. You say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do X, Y, or Z. I feel like I did X in that. In 2018, I did one of the lifelong goals that I've always had for this, which is create a siege and have 30 players in it and and have them have fun i know that in covid it's going to be less in 2022 because we're just going to have to social distance and it'll be a little bit more difficult but we're going to make it happen again i guarantee you
1: oh i can't wait for the next nova to come up for that one there
0: aaron bostian was the sort of the, the godfather of this narrative he created and i was a player in 2016 i was a player in 2017 and then in 2018 i said i need to do something about this i need to take over the reins i need to help him out because at that point he it was starting to get large and you know i just wanted to do something big and after the god beast we had god beast in 2017 and that was pretty awesome but in 2018 i wanted to make it about the players and their stories. So that's kind of what we did and it really worked well. I think I get into this point of the interview where I want to give you as the person who is being interviewed the last word. I always allow my interviewee to have the last word and it's just a simple statement of closer closure or, you know, whatever it is that you want to say, you want to say. So Let me ask you, Mike, what is your last word?
1: My last words have to be from my 40K orcs that I play, that I enjoy very much. And that is, the power claw is the ultimate answer to anything.
0: Thank you, Mike, for being here.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Hey, we're back with Alan. I have Anti-Mike with us in the studio.
2: Hey, how's it going?
0: Oh, don't be so shy anti Mike. So let me ask you, which one are you? Are you the evil one? or Are you the good one?
2: I'm the one with the most magnificent beard. So I would say I'm the good one.
0: Okay. Okay. But isn't the one with the mustache usually the evil one?
2: I can't help that he can't grow facial hair.
0: I understand. What kind of army do you play again?
2: Oh, I play, uh, slaves to darkness.
0: (laughs) Yeah. All right. First question. Who is your general and, and, and what does he do?
2: So my current general, his name is Ricky, the one-eared, he is leading cult. Uh, The cult is known as the children of Archaeus, and they firmly believe that Archaeon is supposed to be a god, a, a chaos god. And so they are trying to will him into power. They believe that he will rule over all chaos gods. (laughs) <laughs> he has kind of shown this by overcoming all the challenges to becoming a chaos ever chosen. Even all four of the gods have kind of fought over trying to, you know, gain his favor, but he is still himself doing what he does.
0: What is Lord Ricky's vocation in his normal everyday life?
2: When Ricky became a general, he or became the general of the army. He originally was worshiping corn, but over time he has realized that there are other like-minded individuals that don't necessarily worship corn but they still have this uh, affinity towards archeon and so with them kind of talking and discussing about what their true true goals were they kind of realized that they aren't they are worshipping the gods but they ultimately want Archaon to rule over those gods and kind of unite all the gods.
0: Now, something happened in a game very recently that would, that would very heavily influence your army from maybe spurning the gods. What, what happened there?
2: In their most recent battle, they fought against a horde of Skaven and apparently the Skaven didn't like this uh, meeting of, of this cult. Lord Ricky decided to fight a, Vermin Lord head on.
0: Mano a mano?
2: And eviscerated it when he looked up to the skies to, uh, you know, try to receive some kind of blessing. He was snubbed by the gods.
0: How dare they? I mean, he tried his best, right?
2: He did not take any damage.
0: He did not fail in at all whatsoever, right? Correct. And yet they still spurned him. Would Archeon have spurned him?
2: I don't think so. I think uh, Archeon would probably... Given him more soldiers or given him a higher status than just Lord.
0: Yeah, because Archeon respects when a job gets done, right? Correct. Exactly. Speaking of which, how do your goals, or rather the goals of your army, align with the goals of the Dramatis Personae, like, say, for instance, Archeon? How do they align with Archeon's goals? Let me give you a little bit of background about what Archeon is doing right now. What Archeon wants to do is obviously he wants to take over all of the realms. He really wants a way into Azir. So he's been trying to, he's been trying to take these gates and con- like corrupt them in such a way that he's able to open them because all of the gates to Azir are blocked and he wants in. How does your Lord play into that?
2: I would say Lord Ricky is definitely making their presence known and by them fighting in the name of Archaon, they are letting you know, all the realms know that Archaon is coming and that you're either going to be on the winning side or you're gonna be dead.
0: All right, all right. And does does Lord Ricky have a day job?
2: No, but he hired Tom from Accounting.
0: Tom from Accounting? Tom from Accounting, who is he?
2: Uh he is a exalted hero that originally was worshipping Slanesh.
0: So let me ask you, where was where is Tom from Accounting? Like what, do you have a city or a realm?
2: No, I, I don't, I don't really have a specific city. If we're going based off of what, like our, our narrative, I would say that he's definitely, he's definitely from Brim's castle. Okay. Brim is uh, my, one of my other Lords. He also worships corn.
0: And uh, I think you also have one more Lord. Isn't it a uh, monstrosity?
2: It is an ogroid. That's, so yeah. <laughs> and his and his his name is uh is Bubbles. <laughs> the reason that he has that name is because when they found him he was sitting in a pool of blood blowing bubbles.
0: Oh yeah, that sounds about right.
2: The god that he worshipped before was Nurgle.
0: Well oh, that's awful nice of him. I mean I'm sure sitting in a pool of blood, blowing bubbles, he sounds like just a stand up cow. <laughs> Yeah. Right, He sounds like a stand-up ogroid. Now that you know sort of what Archeon's goals are, how would you say that your army's goals might clash with his?
2: Well, they want more people to follow Archeon. So they might be less inclined to completely wiping out a city, whereas Archeon might, you know, give the thumbs down and drop the hammer. But I think that they might be more inclined to letting more people join, join in.
0: So I... If I'm reading this right, you're more inclined to be the slaves part of Slaves to Darkness? Yes. Okay. Okay, I can definitely understand that. Yeah, Archeon really, he is very pitiless, I will say that. Where is your army from? What what realm is it from?
2: Originally had them from Akshi, Realm of Fire.
0: Okay, is that because you have a whole whole lot of corn in your army, or is there any particular reason?
2: I would say, yeah. they It originally started off where... I was going the route of corn but then I realized that you know there's so much benefit to having at least you know one hero of every chaos god they bring their own flavors to the army and you could definitely see that in each battle like when you don't put yourself into like a, a narrow hallway you you know you can start doing some really cool stuff especially yeah. with uh especially with some of the smaller units, for example, you know, like the Marauders getting exploding sixes.
0: Yeah. That's pretty nasty.
2: Also getting to be able to run and charge. Ooh, makes run for, and charge
0: is so good.
2: Makes for a very good, uh, turn one. I might be able to wipe out a unit before they get to do anything.
0: Yeah. Especially if for some reason you don't get your teleport spell off, you're still able to use them in a way that they were pretty much intended. Right. Right.
2: Yeah, well, I actually use, I I don't teleport them anymore because more often than not, they are already going to make a charge into something that I want to kill. With them being able to cut down anything that has a, a six plus armor save, like on turn one, and I have literally thrown dozens of dice, I will typically put a unit of warriors on an objective somewhere, or at least take some part of the middle ground to really put a roadblock in front of the enemy units.
0: And those warriors, now I know in 2.0 they were a little bit lackluster. In 3.0, what are your, what do you think of those warriors now?
2: I am a big fan of the warriors. I have not used them to take objectives, push an enemy unit off the objective, but I have noticed that when you put a unit of 10 warriors on an objective, it doesn't matter what's hitting them, they aren't moving for at least three combats.
0: Yeah, they're pretty terrible. I mean, they get that 5-plus against mortals, and...
2: They have a 4-plus armor save. Uh, if you keep them with the the Chaos Sorcerer, they will have a 3-plus armor save.
0: Ooh, yeah, that plus one.
2: Yep, and they get... Uh, I forget what gives them the re-roll ones. I think it's the Slaanesh Lord aura ability. Or not... not I'm sorry, not Slaesh. The, uh, the Zeench aura ability. So having reroll of ones is really good.
0: Yeah, definitely. That being said, does your general or its army, do you think have any significant strengths in this edition? I know we just covered Chaos Warriors, but I do believe there's a second sort of unit that you've been using recently that you didn't really use in 2.0, but in 3.0, you've been really, really using well.
2: Oh, the Chosen, yeah. I mean, both, both those units have been definitely worth their weight in points. The Chosen have... They delete units is the best way to put it.
0: Yeah, they're pretty nasty. And what about that Soul Grinder?
2: So the Soul Grinder has been a champ. He's been a distra- distraction carnifex. If the an enemy unit is uh, magic or shooting heavy, they try to focus it down on turn one, but then they realize, oh, it's got 16 wounds. It doesn't matter if I try to mortal wound it to death. I, I 16 wounds is a lot to chew through.
0: Yeah, it is. And it's not super strong, but it looks particularly powerful. And people think to themselves, oh my God, I got to get this thing down before it gets into my units. But
2: if they ignore it, it will, it will do some terrible things to them. Definitely the, the uh, the cannon and it's bom- the bombardment spit. Or the phlegm whatever. bombardment. Yeah. That like just shooting those things at people, like people don't expect to just randomly take three wounds.
0: Yeah, I will agree with that. Especially if you're you know, targeting some poor six wound or five wound hero and all of a sudden they take three wounds and it kind of clenches them up, right?
2: Yeah. And, and it's melee profile isn't terrible. Like it, most of the things that you want to hit, they aren't affected by its
0: brackets. Yeah, that's definitely for sure. That thing is strong. What have you seen that your army has that, are there any significant weaknesses that your army has? That you've seen on the tabletop or that you've purposely put into play?
2: I don't think that the army has any major weaknesses. I will say that I struggled in the beginning, but I don't know if that was just because I was playing a new army for the first time in a while. Like I I was playing Flesh Eater Court for a very long time and I did have the... Sunesh Demon's army and I I've played with this army but not a whole lot but with 3.0 trying to get it, get used to the new A getting used to the new rules and B trying to understand them from a general perspective and instead of being just one specific god I I definitely think that they have a lot of strengths it it allows you to really pick your playstyle and each playstyle has its own set of weaknesses but as a whole i think the army has very few
0: yeah i I know you talked about that earlier about how you were going to go monocorn but then you decided oh well if i if i add in a zinch here if i add in a nurgle here or maybe a slanesh i can kind of mitigate those weaknesses that you were just talking about i agree i think slaves to darkness has a very solid base no matter almost what you do, as long as you diversify a little bit, you're going to do well. And I think that your record speaks for itself.
2: With the most recent game that I played, I think my record right now is either 6-2 and two or 7-2. and two. I don't know how many games we've played, but I've only lost the first two games. And that was under a different general who happened to die in the campaign.
0: Not Lord Ricky.
2: Not Lord Ricky. Uh, Lord Thrasher, uh, he lost... Miserably to a another corn army, a, a dedicated corn army, and he failed two very key things that he needed to do. And because he failed one of them, it set him back in the combat. And then he failed the second time, which set him back again. And ultimately, it ended with uh, him being devoured by twenty bloodletters and being sacrificed to corn.
0: Oh, but not just sacrificed because as I recall, he is back, right?
2: Oh, oh yeah. Lord Thrasher is back and spawnier than ever.
0: Yeah, he was turned into a chaos spawn. So I wouldn't say he was just sacrificed. Maybe he was tortured and things were grafted on him and the essence of chaos infused him. The gods were quite angry.
2: Yeah, he is now the, uh, I guess you could say the pet of Lord Brim.
0: Oh, I love that. And, you know, that was a really, because Spawn, they're not that great, but it's a really flavorful inclusion into your army. I love that. I love it. It's not super strong, but...
2: I mean, it's a 50-point body that if you need to hold an objective, I'm just going to have this 50-point body hold this objective in the back. And then because he moves 2d6 worth of, you know, movement, when you do his run, it's 3d6. So he, he moves across the board pretty quick when he... When he wants to. That's
0: true. Lord bring, send your dog over to capture that objective. <laughs> what is your favorite non-hero unit in the army?
2: In this army, I would have to say that it's either the Marauders or it's the, the Chosen.
0: And is this from a, like a play point of view or is it because they're strong on the battlefield or is it because you have some sort of like story behind them or what?
2: I would say it'd have to be from the battlefield. The Marauders, there's just so many bodies that whenever you want to do something with them, they, they get the job done. They're, they're reliably fast at getting into combat. And if you put them up against a, a hero or something, something that has like maybe six attacks and one damage each or something, like a, we'll say a, a sorcerer, they will hold that person up, if not kill them. Or if you throw them into your enemy's chaff.
0: Yeah. Like their zombies or they, maybe even their anvil.
2: Anything with a six plus armor save or less, the first round of combat, they're going to they're they're going to do some damage if you get to attack first.
0: Yeah, definitely. Do you think that they punch above their points level or do you think they punch above their belt? I wanna say yes.
2: I think that they do punch above their, their points level. As long as you have something some hero around them. Keep it next to a unit of uh, knights with ensorcelled weapons and a unit of warriors with...
0: Sword and board? Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty nasty. I'll tell you what, they, they definitely do well together. This is a particularly contentious question because I know that you are not the biggest fan of painting. I understand. I actually invite Alan over on thursdays to do paint night and then i say oh you can do whatever you want but then i like hound him to try to paint something or like one color or something what are you most excited to get actual paint on in your army
2: ever since lord ricky has been doing really well i've been really wanting to paint him and i know that i haven't gotten paint on him every week but every week i'm doing something at least for him and he's got at least four colors on him, so I just need to get his his weapon painted and get some of his flesh tones painted, and then I can put a put a wash on and he'll be battle ready.
0: Oh yeah, do you think that might be tonight?
2: Unfortunately, no, not. Oh yeah, tonight.
0: that's right, you're dog sitting. I, forgot. I am. I'm I am dog totally sitting forgot. for my dad.
2: I would bring him over here, but he is one of those dogs that likes to be up in everything and chew on everything.
0: Oh, yeah, I definitely understand. You know, I think I'm going to change that question in the future to not necessarily what are you most excited to paint up, but what are you most excited to have painted on the tabletop? Because nobody really likes to paint. I mean, I kind of like to paint, but I'm more like to have painted models on the tabletop. And I know you do too, because with your FEC, you were really excited to have them all painted. You weren't particularly excited to paint them, but once you had them all done and the same with the Slaanesh, right? Like you were, once you had them all painted, you were like, uh-huh. yes,
2: I definitely did like a, a power struggle of painting them for 30 days to get them ready for Nova both years that I went.
0: Yeah, Alan went with us. If you remember the conversation between Mike and I, uh, Alan was also there with Rebecca, owner of High Tide, where we play all of our battles because High Tide is excellent. I, I can't
2: argue with that.
0: No, you definitely can't. You definitely can't. Uh, I believe last year, Alan came with his. Slanesh, right? The last year that we did it that is 2018 or was it 2019? 2019. 2019. In 2019, Alan came with his Slanesh. W- what was your story behind that? I don't remember
2: there really being a a big story. I do remember a specific hero which was Garzadag. Oh yeah. Who uh, in the final battle at Nova the the big the siege.
0: Yeah, the siege.
2: Uh, he didn't do very well and because of that he got Disowned by the gods and left for dead, and was actually recruited into the uh, flesh eater court army. That that I have, he is a three armed crypt horror or crypt haunter. Sorry,
0: I do remember that. Um, this was when Slanesh was really, really powerful. Do you remember that? Yes, I do. It's they just came out with a new battle tome, and the best thing to do was to have keepers of secrets and then keep. Summoning them on the battlefield. That being said, how many keepers of secrets did you have in that army? Just one. And how many other keepers of secrets did you have in waiting to be summoned? None. Okay, so it's fair to say that you built, you didn't build this army to like necessarily win. You built it because you loved the aesthetic of Slaanesh at the time.
2: Correct. I definitely wanted to have some uh, demonettes that had some uh, liver problems going on, so they were yellow.
0: <laughs> Let me ask you another question then. Now that. Now that Slaanesh has been toned down and having four or five keepers of secrets and waiting in the winds is like not the best thing in the world. Do you still enjoy that army? Do you like it?
2: I only have the the Chaos Demons uh, Slanesh army. I don't have their new mortals of Slanesh, but mm-hmm. I would say that the army itself, it feels like it wants to do something and it wants to do it well, but it, it just can't turn that corner to, to do it
0: yeah because you've got high armor saves so you you've got five plus armor saves in in you know an addition where low armor saves are king you've got double hits but not a whole lot of rend. you've got powerful heroes, but you don't want to play hero hammer uh, you, you
2: can't uh you can't run with multiple units of thirty
0: demonettes anymore. Yeah, because you've got those reinforcement points. Uh, so let me ask you then, if I were to say that the favorite part, my most favorite part of that army were the bases, what would you say?
2: That you like gold glitter?
0: What Alan did was he, Rebecca, or was it you?
2: I did everything for it.
0: Oh, I didn't know if she got it for you. Like she actually acquired the...
2: Oh no, I, I bought it. She, yeah. she didn't know.
0: So what Alan did was he got gold glitter that were just big enough to kind of look like gold coins and then he glued them to all of the bases to look like they were just trampling on tons, and tons of mountains of gold, smog like levels of gold. Yep. And they look really awesome. I, I always think of it as either the herpes army or the chlamydia army because glitter is kind of like the herpes of the craft world.
2: Yeah. I would say that I definitely have enough of that, uh, the glue substance that I used on it, where if it was going to fall off, it's definitely already done that in the past two years. So I don't really worry about Glitter being anywhere unless the dog or Violet is
0: scratching at it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Let's talk a little bit about the last army that you play. I know FEC, Flesh Eater Courts has had a little bit of a setback this edition on the account of their very pillow-fisted. They have very little rend. They've got a lot, maybe a lot of bodies, but they also don't have very high armor saves. It's very hard for them unless you're running you know, kind of a monster mash in this edition. And Alan, I I know you never really wanted to run monster mash. I I feel like you loved ghoul patrols and things like that.
2: Yeah. I I definitely loved throwing a lot of bodies and tar pitting a unit, but you just
0: can't do that with this army now.
2: Nope. Not with those reinforcement uh, issues. And, and now with the new uh, coherency rules with having five or more models, it, it really hurt the, ability to run cryptors in unit of six and do it efficiently because now even if you do run them in a unit of six you might as well have them just be in a unit of three because it's
0: yeah two of them have to be in the back babysitting right yep and you can't move them in any way shape or form because they're just on such hard i mean sorry because they're on such large bases you just can't do what you want with them and i feel like that's a unit that you should be able to break coherency with At least or they should say, Oh well, the new unit size is five. And then that would help them, right?
2: That would help them or changing their weapon range because they are they are said to be carrying around clubs.
0: Yeah, big old clubs.
2: Have a two-inch range with it.
0: And let me ask you another thing. It's like I see battle line units like the Lumineth with their spears and they've got minus one rend. So why can't your horrors have minus one rend, right?
2: I 100% agree, especially since I have with the the horrors, there's less bodies, they're no rend. There's they, they have attacks, but not a whole lot. And if you don't have a ghoul king around, they are really just an overpriced four wound model
0: yeah, and a lot of the things in that army are just plain overpriced unfortunately they're overpriced for what they do and i found that when you charge a unit of those in even if they're doing two damage per swing even if you get to attack twice with them if i have a three plus save and you're coming into me i kind of like shrug and say okay maybe i'll lose a guy maybe one and a half guys maybe two guys And that's just the way it is in this new meta. And it's unfortunate because your FEC have, in my opinion, just the best story behind them. So why don't we talk just a little bit about who your ghoul king is?
2: My ghoul king is King Vargo. He, I have, I've definitely put a lot of time and effort into his, his backstory. He originated as a corn slaughter priest. In his attempt to gain power, he, he got manipulated into becoming a ghoul king. And over time, through battles, uh, I've gone through, I think, three of our store campaigns. His story has slowly developed into what it is now, but he's now a, an arch regent in the Flesh Eater Court army.
0: He is an arch regent because he ate the flesh of,
2: of a, of a God beast.
0: Yes. He was in our 2018 Nova open where we had the big God beast come in. And that was one of the things that he did once he, we were all battling inside of the God beast. And King Vara was like, load up a whole bunch of stuff on this. Cause we had all airships. Everybody yep. had to bring a custom airship. So he loaded up his airship with God beast meat and brought it back to the vaults.
2: Yep. And with that, he converted half of his army into uh, crypt horrors, over, oversized crypt horrors, and built the Holofang uh, castle.
0: That's why you ran Morn at the last high tide campaign. Yes. I feel like this FEC army that you have, it really shows that even if you were a debased follower of Corn, you can change, right? A man can change.
2: Yeah, everyone has a little bit of nobility in them.
0: Yeah, you can be a- an arch regent. A noble arch regent.
2: Yep. (laughs) I'm sorry. What do you want from me?
0: (laughs) No, that's it. That's all. I'd like to pivot a little bit and ask you if you could have one unit or model from another army, and this is talking for your slaves to darkness army in this army, what would it be? And this could be an ally. It could be part of the main army. It could be a coalition unit, whatever you, you want. Dragon ogres. Yeah. You want those back?
2: I would love to have those especially since they they have their own god that i i think is chaos and i i, I would want them to be under Archaeon.
0: <laughs> i completely agree i really loved that there was a whole race of beings that willingly like enslaved themselves to the chaos gods and were like okay just wake us up if you ever need anything but we're just gonna st- Sleep underneath our underneath our hills and be immortal if that's okay with you. And the Chaos Gods were like, yeah, we got the better of this deal. But the Dragon Ogres, I feel like, did get the better of that deal because they got exactly what they wanted. And they didn't mind slaughtering for the Chaos Gods, right?
2: Yeah, I definitely think that the the models I really I really dig the models for it. If it wasn't for those models, I would probably say a giant chaos ogre, giant gargant. Ooh, yeah. Chaos Gargan. Nothing nothing says worship me like having a big half-naked dude running around in your army.
0: <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> Lord Ricky's like, you put that away right now, mister. But
2: boss, I'm <laughs> hungry.
0: <laughs> no, you put down the accounting manager right this instant. Thank you very much for coming on. I always like to say at the end, whenever I interview somebody... I like to give them the last word. And so I would ask you to speak a little bit, just sort of off the cuff about whatever it is that you want, just a couple of words. And I will let you have the last words. So
2: if I had one thing to say to anybody about Warhammer in general, uh, when a new edition comes out, don't, don't get discouraged if your army that you love is not in a good place. But it, it gives you a chance to look at other armies, and even if you're just playtesting them, to give them a try, because I was I was ready to write off uh, Age of Sigmar 3.0 because my number one and number two army kind of fell to the wayside and, and are not in a very good place right now, at least in my opinion. But it gave me a chance to try out the... Slaves to Darkness army as a, as a general tryout. And I've, I've really been enjoying it and getting those creative juices going for a new general, a new, uh, a new plan. I I definitely have been enjoying 3.0 with, with a new army and I can only hope that in the future, you know, the, the Slave, or I'm sorry, not Slaves to Darkness. The uh, Flesh Eater Court and the slanesh Demons get a little bit of love to be a little more competitive. I don't want to say competitive, but have good battles. I like it when battles are down to the last turn where it's like, it really depends on what is rolled between these two units. Uh, I don't like it when turn two, you just look at your opponent and be like, yeah, I guess that's the way the cookie crumbles. So, definitely if your army gets into a bad place, whether it be a new book or new rules, don't just write the game off to give another army a try, even if it's one that you didn't think you would like, you will definitely enjoy it, I think.
0: Well, thank you very much for coming on and thank you very much for being here with me. It's greatly appreciated.
2: I'm out, yo. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Hey guys, Matt here. I just wanted to sort of talk a little bit before I got into the next narrative. This is something I wrote after my daughter, Evelyn, had a uh, battle against Luminath, And I thought to myself, how do exactly, you know, the realms of Shaiish and the peoples of Shaiish deal with Ossiarch Bone Reapers? And it can't all be doom and gloom because there have been hints before that the great necromancer himself has blessed civilizations that, you know, venerate him. And I'm wondering, these Osiarch Bone Reapers are supposed to be like this great protectorate of the realm. They're kind of like, like a mafia of sorts. So there has to be somebody that they actually protect. They can't just be all stick. They have to be some carrot. I thought to myself, well, maybe there's a Dome. Uh, by the way, I call my ostearch Bone Reapers Legion the Dome of Bone, D-H-O-M-E of Bone. I thought to myself, what would they do with Lumineth? Because it was revealed that they highly prize elven bones. Maybe they would think of a way to work with them rather than always just taking them after what would appear to be a battle that costs them dearly. So... Enjoy, I do a little bit of civilization building, a little bit of character building, sort of trying to answer the questions that we all have, like how do mortals actually live in these realms, and especially Shaish, Prisoners of the Gods The elf looked at the woman across the table from her. She did not look at the creature made of bones sitting to her right. The creature was a caricature of a bipedal mortal, with bones in place of muscle and sinew. The elf could feel the residue of amethyst magic binding the creature. It was as though they applied a wood stain made of magic to seal it. She was sure the other mortal in the room could not feel it. Humans had such dull senses, and it took them so long to see what was right in front of their face. Nobody said anything, and the bored looking human with a tightly wrapped bun of black hair and thick glasses used a gold tipped quill to write for the next minute. The elf waited. She was patient. It wasn't her life's sand slipping through the hourglass. Finally, the gaunt-cheeked official cleaned the nub of her pen, wiped it with a much-used cloth, and placed it in a drawer at her side. "'Your name?' she asked. To the elf's surprise, the official was not fearful. The official did not even glance at the undead monstrosity of bone crouching next to her. "'Your name?' she repeated, and her voice attended a nasal tonality. The elf said nothing, but pursed her lips." The official turned to the skeletal creature. Do you know if she's a mute? They spoke. They screamed, it said. Its voice was a raspy hollow, air forced through bones to resemble speech. Battle cries. Cries of pain. So they can speak, she said. She turned to the elf. You can speak, correct? I can, the elf said. She was offended that this ignorant mortal would think that her perfection could be marred by such a disability. The clone adepts in Iliatha would never allow that to happen. I will not give you my name, though. Names have power. Yes, the woman said, though if she agreed with the elf or not, the elf could not tell. If I cannot distinguish you when formed into lots for work detail, you will be assigned a brand. You may call me Anestra, the elf said. "'That was her grandmother's name, dead a thousand years in the collapse of the Akaridara. "'I will not be your slave. I will not do your work. "'I will die before furthering your unnatural kingdom.' "'The officious woman's eyes glazed as though she had heard this before "'and was waiting for the elf known as Ayanestra to wind down before speaking. "'She folded her hands and watched the elf. "'Well,' the elf said, are you going to have your monsters slaughter me and harvest my bones now that you know i will not serve you please know that we do not make this offer to every captive taken the woman said the opportunity to live well exists here we follow our ancestors guidance she said as she indicated the bone creature next to her when we die we live on with them and they protect us The great necromancer has ever been kind to our people, and we ensure he finds bountiful harvest in us so that his great warriors may protect us. The elf sat back, a look of disgust playing on her face. You want me to be grateful for the chance to, what, be farmed by them? It is not a farm, the official said. We have fine academies where our children and youths are taught. They learn engineering, war, even magic. You could become a great professor of the etheric in the dome. I have been told that elven bones do not grow brittle, so you will not be harvested for a long time. Your genetic traits can be used to strengthen our stock considerably. The elf's tinkle of laughter cut her off. It was cruel, as though a student had said something particularly unenlightened. (laughs) You think that even if I could, I would wallow in the mud with your offspring?' Little one, I am an enlightened Viliatha. We do not need to debase ourselves in such a way any more to conceive We are incapable of such barbaric acts. She said with a degree of smug finality. The woman finally showed some emotion as her brows knitted together, and she looked to one side. Is she telling the truth? she asked the creature of bone. This is unknown, it said in reply. She may be lying. The elf braced herself for what was to come. Torture was possible. Worse than torture was possible. Do your worst, she said. She let spite deliver the words and saw a mist of saliva punctuate her sibilance. The official sat straight with her nose in the air. "'Ionestra, I am offended that you would think so low of our people. "'We are not barbarians, like those bands of chaos-empowered lunatics "'rampaging across the land. "'We would not use physical pain to get information, "'and we do not allow experimentation of any type on captives. "'It is unethical.' "'The elf laughed again at the absurdity of the statement. "'But you would kill me and harvest my bones,' she said. "'Yes.' "'the woman replied, "'though we would do so in a way that was not painful. "'Indeed, we did not even want to do that. "'After your people's invasion of our realm, "'we reached out to your rulers. "'We sent three emissaries, "'one being a most skilled philosopher "'and one of the oldest constructed ancestral bone wardens we had. "'Do you know what happened?' "'The elf said nothing, so the woman continued. "'Your people killed them.' Under a flag of truce, they put them in gilded cages and let the light of Hish burn them and blind them until they died of dehydration. They disassembled our philosopher and unbound the sutures of his soul. We lost him and every one of his progeny that had been bound with him. They flung those souls into the void beyond the realm gates. My name is Havana Sol And that was my ancestors your people destroyed. You invaded our realm first, the elf said. Heat rose in her cheeks as she said it. You despoiled one of the most sacred mountains we had and destroyed a place of great beauty. Did we? she asked. Or do we all just look alike to you? Can you say that it was our dome that did that? Our armies that have not marched in a thousand years before last week? She held up a hand to forestall the elf's heated reply. I will not insult you by saying we do not know of that which you speak. Yes, we know of the legion's invasion of Hish. We know of your lord's counterattack, which smashed one of our guardian fortresses near the realm gate. But it was your Iliatha which attacked our dome directly, was it not? Did your nation attack our dome? We do, as the light of truth commands, the elf said. She knew it was a feeble argument. "'And we do, as the great necromancer commands,' the woman said with a flat stare. "'He has commanded us to defend these lands and this realm. "'Neither I nor our ancestral constructs have harmed you or yours before this battle. "'In other times we have sent emissaries to your places of learning. "'We have treated with your Cathalers. "'Our ancestors have learned much of shaping bone from them.' "'You lie,' the elf replied.' "'None of the sacred order of Cenari would dare treat with abominations like these creatures. "'Yet, if anything, the woman's back got a bit more rigid. "'I have offended her,' the elf thought. "'As in everything else you have presumed, you have been misinformed,' the woman said. "'I invite you to return to your homeland, since you would not take us up on our offer.' "'The official placed a vellum envelope into the elf's hand.' Deliver this to your people so that we may prevent avoidable chaos of skirmishes like these in the future. I would like to remember that we have a great enemy, and it does not rest on its laurels. We waste time fighting each other. Let our gods strike at one another if they feel they have to, but we should save our strength for the real war. The elf knew precisely of whom the official spoke, though she said nothing in response. This petty bureaucrat could not know that they had their great enemy locked away. If they were stupid enough to let her go, she would destroy the vellum envelope as soon as she could. And when you get back to your homeland, seek out your cathalar. the woman said. I am sure she will have words for you. Tell her that the two hundred twenty-first lineage of Saragath has bade you find the light of truth. Perhaps we will meet again in better times. The elf sneered. (laughs) "'Not likely.' "'Iliatha would, in all likelihood, clone her a body, "'unblemished by the earlier failure and the touch of these abominations. "'She looked forward to the new skin as one might a fresh bath.' "'After the honored ancestor led the elf away, "'Havana bowed in respect as another ancestor reformed itself "'from the chair of bone the elf had been seated upon. "'Honored ancestor?' she said. "'What is your assessment?' it asked. To an outsider, the voices could sound very similar. Havana, however, had her whole life to discern the various small differences in the constructs. "'What is your assessment?' it asked. This one was curt and abrupt. A professor, perhaps, or a teacher in life. "'She is, in all probability, telling the truth. "'We have examined many dead after the battle.' They lack all reproductive functionality. And as an emissary, the ancestor asked, will she comply? No, Havana said. She will likely destroy the missive before anyone can read it. That would mean our diversion was a success. You can depend on these beings of Hish, in a way. They are predictable. She will talk to her catholer. Not doing so will gnaw her hubris. "'And if the Cthulhu destroys her for the questions she asks,' it said. Havana shrugged. "'We cannot control completely the actions of another,' she said. "'If the Cathala does not, then we may create the smallest crack in their Tower of Arrogance. "'With enough cracks, the foundation of their society may crumble, "'and it may prevent another wasteful invasion.' The Honoured Ancestor knew all of this, of course." Havana said the words like a mantra, and she believed she might prevent another calamity in the Dome, her heartland, where her family and her ancestors lived. Send in the next prisoner, she said, and began writing another letter. Hey, we're back And well, I'm back, and here's the question that I have today is, how do you deal with Gotrich? both as a player and as somebody who's going up against him. I went up against him yesterday and I didn't have too much of a problem with him because I kind of knew what his strengths and weaknesses were. I knew that he was a blender. So the first thing I'd say is if you have an army that excels at putting out mortal wounds, you're in luck. Godric has a space marine save against mortal wounds. He only has a three plus. And I mean, people say, oh, he's got that three plus. All you have to do is make him roll ones and twos. If you have high mortal wound output, then you'll be just fine. If you play an army like Stormcast, then you're going to have to play the runaway game, or you're going to have to tell, uh, make it so that the other player has to commit trick in a way that, that puts him out of place, like makes him run over to one side of the board because he only has like four inches of movement. He can't really do much else other than that. So as long as you can get him to commit to one side or the other, then he's going to be not as not as easy for your opponent to use against you and i wouldn't say especially if you have a storm cast or if something that's like really expensive and there aren't a whole lot of them don't just sacrifice units to him you can't you can't play that game because then he's actually getting his points value off cuz know go tricks let's say just a little under 500 points and if he kills two or three units of Stormcast, all of a sudden he's made up his points there. Your opponent is doing his job as far as what trick does, which is kill. If you have something like Blades of corn, which is what I had last night, then I would say encircle Gotrick. Get your guys up there, make them run up, get your Reaver squads and say, well, here's 10 Reavers uh, within three inches of you, 3.01 inches away from you. They're not going to charge you. They're just going to circle you and you can't really do anything except for fight them. And so now you're forcing your opponent to use go trick in a way that kills an 80 point squad of 10 guys that goes down to a stiff breeze anyway. And it gives you a blood point. If you're playing something like goblins or any other, anything else skaven that has cheap bodies throw those 10 cheap bodies, not up against him, but in his way, constantly be in his way, make him commit to, sitting there and killing 10 bodies while 10 more are just a mere six inches away on the, you know, on the objective or wherever they need to be so that every turn you're just feeding him more and more and forcing him to stay away from your, your monsters, your hell pit abominations or your rat ogres or whatever he actually wants to get into and kill. Because a lot of people I noticed the first thing they do is they'll throw a big dragon or a, Hell pit abomination or, you know, harvester goth is our harvester against him. And then he just kills that thing dead immediately. And they're like, Oh, uh, run, run away. And, you know, run away from go trick is, is a good thing to do. It's, you know, it's definitely a strategy, but I like to let my unit or let my opponent use his model, I know last night my opponent was pretty happy that Gotrick did really destroyed a couple. I I got him a little bit too close to my blood secretor and he did manage to kill the blood secretor and he managed to kill a couple squads of reavers and he killed some, some corn demons that I immediately brought back. That's what eventually killed him or anything you can, anytime you can look at Gotrick and say, here, make a whole, whole bunch of saves. He will eventually fail eight of them. And your opponent can heal him up, but if he's healing him up, he's not doing anything else. He's not finest houring. He's not getting additional command points. He's not doing anything else. He's just healing go trick. I'd say keep him in place. That's the best thing you can do or run away from him. But I like to keep him in place because I like to, I like to tell my opponent, you, you brought this thing to kill. You have no choice, but to either kill or let my guys just stand there and if you let my guy stand there, then they're going to take objectives. So that's what I would say about trick And if you're running trick, one thing that you need to definitely think about is if you can have some shooting units around him. Because if you have some shooting units around him, even one good unit of say Thunders or those Drake guns or just anything that that can get their chaff out of the way so that Gotrick can actually charge what he wants to charge. Because if your opponent puts 10 guys around go and you don't have anything to shoot them with or magic them down or do like wounds that will kill that chaff unit Then you're going to be stuck. So I would definitely say get a little bit of shooting and put it around go And if they, if they charge the shooting unit with something that kills, you know, units, then there you go. You've got something that at least, at least now you're kind of boxing them out as well. I don't I don't wanna say Gotrick needs a bodyguard, but, but Gotrick needs a bodyguard. He needs somebody to hang around with. He needs some guys to just make it so that your opponent doesn't encircle him and and not let him move. That's how I would definitely use Gotrick if I was if I was to use him. I know I know people they kind of tend to buff Gotrick in a, as far as his they'll give him plus one or his armor save or they'll cast Mystic Shield on him. I feel like he's fine just the way he is. He he just needs to, you just leave him alone and let him do what he does. And if he dies, he dies. But a lot of times he's going to take out at least half his points. And if you can force your opponent to overcommit in one particular area of the board, then you can take a lot of your uh, the rest of your army and use it as like a bully, bully boy squad. Bully the rest of their army because after they're throwing squad after squad after squad of go trick, they don't have a whole, whole lot. Like last night, I didn't have a whole whole lot on the left or the right side, just some like 10 blood warriors, I think on each side. I I don't think they would be able to resist if uh, my opponent put a good portion of his army on the left or the right, they wouldn't be able, they would just get overrun. And eventually you'd have, you know, the other half of, or in this case, the other two thirds of the guy's army would have been rampaging around in my backfield and I'd be in some real trouble. So that's how I would deal with Gotrick. And that's how I would play Gotrick too. Whatever it is, just uh, you know, try to have fun with your opponent. A lot of, last night I, I told my opponent, I was like, my whole my whole thing is I really want to kill Gotrick. I don't I don't care about anything else. I don't care about winning or losing the mission. I don't care if any of his other guys die or live. I just want to kill Gotrick. I want to see if I can do it with blades of corn. And I did manage to pull it out because demons of corn being, you know, being buffed by this or that or the other thing are pretty darn good. I want to say that was my, that was kind of my narrative mission. I knew what the mission was and I knew what everything else was. I felt like corn really would have wanted to, wanted to wound him. I know I can't really kill Goodrick because it's not really a thing that you do, but I could at least wound him. And cause a bunch of carnage because, right, corn cares not from whence the blood flows. My guy's skulls will work just as well as any other.
2: Thank you for listening to Seriously
0: Narrative, a Warhammer podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with us for questions, please email us at seriouslynarrativepodcast at gmail.com. We also have a Facebook page at facebook.com backslash seriouslynarrativepodcast. This episode of Seriously Narrative, a Warhammer podcast, is protected by the Creative Commons license. If you have any questions about the Creative Commons license, please visit their website at creativecommons.org. Music is provided by Incompetech created by Kevin MacLeod and used under the Creative Commons license. Thank you for listening.